Hello, and welcome to this special edition of the Thames and Hudson podcast. In this audio trilogy, archaeologist and author David Miles invites us to explore the prehistoric monuments and landscapes around his home in rural France. For more information on David Miles's books, head to our website, thamesandhudson.com. This is France Profonde. You can't get profonder than this. Just up above us, we've got uh, one, two, three, four vultures circling round those crags. I'm archaeologist David Miles. I've worked on archaeological projects across the world, and now I live in a rural part of southern France, the Cévennes. I'm interested in how aspects of human experience today can be understood by seeing how they arose out of our deep past. In these three episodes, I'll be exploring the French countryside around my home to examine three themes that still shape us. Later, we'll be looking at the sky and at our sense of home. But in this first episode, we're setting off to explore the land. My wife Gwyn and I have lived in this beautiful wild region of France for 20 years. Our home is perched above a deep gorge. Let's, uh, let's go through here. this view that really sold this house to us. But when you come out through here, it's suddenly like emerging on a cliff face. And this balcony faces due south and it hangs right over the river Salandrin. It feels like we're living in a forest. It's just woodland as far as the eye can see. As an archaeologist, I think that understanding the deep past can help us understand our present. A walk in the forest is a chance to contemplate the changes humans have made over millennia. Many thousands of years ago, Paleolithic hunters followed trackways made by wild animals, such as aurochs. Along these tracks, people hacked and burnt clearings to encourage new plant growth for the animals and to provide themselves with food. It must have taken somebody hundreds of hours of backbreaking work. Why is it that people own land? When did they start to own it? By what right? This is a question that goes deep into our prehistory. In 1755, Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote on the origin and the foundation of inequality among mankind. Agriculture, he argued, led to more complex social and economic arrangements, and this led to private property and to exploitation. Boundless forests became fields, he wrote, 
in which slavery and misery were soon seen to sprout. This debate about when inequality arose still heavily influences our thinking today. There's a tendency to see the Neolithic and the adoption of agriculture as the great watershed. But nearly three centuries on from Rousseau, we know that things were more complicated. We know that some hunter-gatherers had created permanent settlements and managed their land long before the Neolithic. On the shore of the Sea of Galilee in Israel, at a site known as Ohalo II, hunter-gatherers settled over 20,000 years ago. They developed new stone tools to efficiently gather wild grasses. They made ropes, baskets and nets from twisted fibres to catch almost 80 different types of bird. And they exploited over 140 varieties of plant. These people were not Rousseau's simple savages. Nevertheless, over time, farmers did gradually displace or outbreed hunter-gatherers. And the stunning novelty that spread across Europe in the Neolithic was this, that certain plants and animals could be genetically modified to become utterly dependent on humans. They could be tamed and owned. And the land that sustained these crops and animals became, in a sense, owned too. Dramatic changes were enacted on landscapes as if staking a claim on them. A few years ago, I was standing by the gate of my home in the Cévennes. A herd of Obrac cattle were trotting past, being led to pasture. The music of their hooves struck off the road. The white and blonde cows are accompanied by a magnificent coffee-coloured bull, all muscle and testosterone. If it's an impressive spectacle in the 21st century, imagine what it seemed like to hunter-gatherers glimpsing these tamed beasts for the first time. We can get some idea of this fascination from a curious burial pit found near the tumulus of Urgrar in Brittany. The pit contains not the bodies of people, but two skeletons of domestic cattle buried over 6,500 years ago. Now, Neolithic herders had not yet settled that part of northern France, and so the burial must have been carried out by hunter-gatherers. These hunters would not have had domesticated beasts, so where did they get such animals from? It seems likely that they were acquired from neighbours or near neighbours, farmers who lived just over the Loire River to the south. And it's this kind of contact and cultural exchange between hunters and farmers that explains why the hunter-gatherer tombs in Brittany suddenly started to become more elaborate. For thousands of years, the lives of those older Mesolithic hunters had been intertwined with the natural world. Their tombs were absorbed in the landscape. Their occupants were buried with natural objects. The pit with the cattle burial marks a transitional moment in which the new ideas about the land and landscape were taking root. Out went the old hunt tombs intertwined with nature and in came monuments. For the next 2,000 years, the farmers would box their dead in ever-grander megalithic structures. These are the tombs, stone circles and avenues that still mark the landscape of Europe, and the dead who lay in them were accompanied by magical green stones, 
polished jadeite axes from the Alps and beads of varicite from Spain. If the Mesolithic hunters were of nature, the Neolithic farmers were attempting to master nature. If the old hunters were lovers of vegetable, the new farmers were lovers of mineral, of stone, June in the Cévennes. My wife Gwyn and I have driven about an hour from our home. It's a very hot day, but we're up high here, so there's a nice breeze. But that's very pretty. It's, it's almost like a little cornflower, but just right down at the bottom. This landscape in front of us is known as the Coste de Blandas. Coast in French means a limestone plateau. It's obvious there are no herbicides up here. Surrounding us are clouds of butterflies and plenty of wildflowers. Oh, look at this that's, one that's Campanula. That's a Campanula. And somewhere up here, just over the brow of the hill above us, is something very surprising. It's, it's down here. It's Suddenly, far. out of the scrub, there it is. A great stone circle. It's called the Cromlech de Lacam de Perarine. It was built by farmers around 5,000 years ago, about a millennium after agriculture had arrived in this part of France. The opposite of Stonehenge. Stonehenge gets a million visitors a year. This gets about six. <laughs> it may not be very well known, but it has the largest diameter of any stone circle in France. To cross it from one side to the other, takes a couple of minutes. This stone is a tall one. It stands out in the ring because it's twice the size of the others. This to me looks like the place where there could be an entrance. Quite close into us there is a ring of hills. What's really noticeable when you stand in this site is that it's positioned right in the middle of a natural amphitheatre. Over 6,000 years ago, when the first farmers arrived here, this place was much more enclosed than it is now. It was a mosaic of woodland. So to make their dramatic statements with the land, those farmers had to clear it. On the way back up to the car, we pass a cluster of clearance cairns. Generations of farmers had to clear the land, not just of trees and shrubs, but of stones, For a, a, for a Neolithic plough, these stones would have been a damn nuisance. Dozens of these cairns stud the hillside. Some of the cairns up here may be several thousand years old. So we can see how this became a cultural landscape rather than a natural or wild one. Neolithic innovations brought in a new way of seeing the land that transformed us as humans. Other transformations would follow, but we'd begun a new relationship with the land that continues to shape us today. The 
the uncompromising geology of this land gave the region its name. The first recorded use of the name Cevennes is by Julius Caesar. And the word Savenna that Caesar used is Celtic. It means something like the spines or backbones. The English writer Adam Thorpe is a neighbour. He once described the landscape of the Cevennes as like a knuckled fist. The Cevennes offers rock, nothing but rock. The 19th century historian Jules Michelet wrote of this region. You feel the struggle of man there. His stubborn and prodigious labour in the face of nature. This is a hard land to crack. And somebody who knows how hard is Angelo. A few years ago, Angelo rebuilt some of the terraces around our house. My average was two square metres per day. And on this hot summer's afternoon, Angelo and I are standing in front of the house admiring his handiwork. Look at this one. Oh, yes. That's, that stone, That's, uh, that must weigh... I think, oh, 70 kilos. These valleys are steep and, uh, and stony. There's little flat, the, cultivatable the, land. This is a typically granite uh, stone that you find here and uh, is a very strong stone because you have a lot of point of quartz. As the prehistoric population rose, farmers could extract more food from these inhospitable slopes by building terraces of soil supported by walls made of stone blocks. Its key infrastructure, the result of back-breaking labour by generations of farmers. That one is more. This one. And that one, I remember that one. For me, that stone came from the river. With its labour-intensive stone landmarks, the Neolithic introduced another formative idea, the inheritability of land. The hard-won terraces of the kind Angelo built are bequeathed to children, and those children remember the ancestors that built them and feel that their ownership is eternal, the order of things. Land, ancestry and inequality then all became intertwined in the upheaval of the Neolithic. It wasn't just cultivators that cleared the forests and built stone monuments and terraces. Another group of Neolithic people marked the land here, governed by the rhythms of the seasons, shepherds and their flocks. In the winter, flocks of sheep and goats are kept on the lowlands near the Mediterranean. Then, as the sun gets hotter and grazing more scarce, in June, the shepherds move the flocks to fresh pasture up in the mountains. This practice is known as transhumance, and it's something that's been going on for millennia. The landscape round here is scored through by ancient trackways known as dray. Sections of the dray must have been used more or less continuously since the first farmers built the stone circle up on the coast of Blandas five to six thousand years ago. From the balcony of our house, I can see a ridge on which prehistoric tombs and standing stones mark the line of a dray. Keeping to high ground, following the ridges, 
the dray paths prized open the Neolithic landscape. Like the Ridgeway in England, they form the first of an increasingly complex network of trackways. So we've just come up here from the river and then with the great big hair. Many shepherds in the Cévennes still practice the transhumans on foot every summer. Must be the world's twistiest road we've just come up. Local shepherd, Patrick Maye, completed the transhumans in June. We're going to visit him. We go up to this place called Pierre Fiche du Larzac, and then if we keep on going, we find a farm called Labouri. Patrick's summer pasture lies in the shadow of Monte Gual, the high mountain to the west of the Cévennes. Monte Gual means something like the wet mountain, an appropriate name for the wettest place in France. Here, Patrick and his partner, Mathilde, spend the summer months with the flock they brought along the Dre earlier in June. Their livestock is one-third goats and two-thirds sheep, and they are helped by their two border collies, Pixel and Picaloo. Patrick is decked out in some impressive woolens. Le chapeau aussi. Oh, le chapeau aussi. Yeah. Pat, Pat, Patrick's hat. It's a unique hat, this. It's made from felted wool from his own flock. And what I like is the smell. It's, it's, you can smell the oil. Lanoline. Preparations to begin the journey along the Dre began in late spring. La veille du départ. The day before we leave for the transhumans in June, we put decorations on all the animals, bells around their necks. And then we set out along the dry to the summer pasture. They travel 20 kilometers a day. When it's very hot, they travel in the early hours of the morning. Patrick tells us how sections of the dray are visibly very old. At Bonperrier, high up in the peaks, there's an old tavern that's been used by the shepherds for years. At Kumvarat, that's the site of an agricultural fair, and that's been there for a very, very long time. Up there on the dry, you can even see the tracks in the stones left by cartwheels over many centuries. As humans, we are now all too aware of our recent destructive impact on land and landscape. But this process has been thousands of years in the making. It often comes as a surprise that our Neolithic ancestors changed, even damaged the land dramatically, and in ways that we can still see. We're on another nature walk, this time up to Mass Nerf, on another dry limestone plateau. On the summit are the ruins of a very late Neolithic village. Once, 4,000 years ago, people farmed the land up here, farmed it and changed it, exhausted it, in fact. It's dry, barren, covered in this garig vegetation. But when we look to the bottom of the cliff down below us, it's full of villages. And you can see the soil's very fertile. And that's because 
the Neolithic people, when they cleared the land up here, a lot of the soil washes down and it's ended up down there. So the valley is very fertile, but the hills, there are miles and miles of hills covered in Shenvert and not inhabited and not uh, cultivated because of the fact that the soil has been removed and eroded and is now uh, not very hospitable to agriculture. While I don't subscribe to the view that the adoption of agriculture is the source of all our ills, it was this upheaval in our land management over several thousand years that set us on the path to our perilous present. The pace of global warming, habitat and species destruction is bringing humankind to the brink. Everywhere we go, we're seeing the land blighted. The heat waves ever more furious. The forest fires ever more ferocious. L'incendie a déjà ravagé 650 hectares de forêt dans le Gard, nécessitant l'intervention ce matin encore des avions de la sécurité civile. Water-bearing plains, known as Canadairs, belch their loads onto the burning trees. It's often said that looking at nature nowadays is like reading a book in a burning library. But something else is happening in the valleys around my home too. Elsewhere in France, as in so many parts of the world, intensive agriculture is creating biodiversity deserts. Insects and bird numbers are crashing. But in the Cévennes, the forest is, in fact, slowly creeping back. Because this is old pasture land and arable that's been let go. It's not had no chemicals in it. This is happening because shepherds like Patrick and their sheep are ever rarer. The steep slopes are left ungrazed. When farmers and their children leave for the town, the now uncultivated terraces are swallowed by the advancing forest. It's, it's getting box and uh, blackthorn, pear, oak, so all the people in England who are trying to rewild the landscape could, could come and look at this. As in Britain, the rewilding debate stokes emotions here too. Wolves, even lynx, are reappearing in the Cévennes. Environmentalists rejoice. Shepherds, on the other hand, are not happy at all at the re-emergence of these ancestral foes. It's an exciting challenge to the ingrained idea that the land is there solely for us, and that its value can only be measured in economic terms. During rewilding, landscapes do not necessarily return to how they were in the past. In my valley, invasive species, such as false acacia, are thriving, pushing out the native trees like oaks and wild cherry. As the summers get hotter, the Chinese tree of heaven climbs higher and higher, up the valley. I'm with Yolande, my neighbour. The wild boar have turned over the ground, uh, searching for small animals, for roots, for tubers, and uh, anything they can find in here. Uh, Maybe truffles. <laughs> Yolande's 17th century farmhouse perches on a forested spur that runs parallel with the river. The forest around her house is becoming sufficiently wild 
to attract some special visitors. Here are the marks of the teeth on the oak trunk. Because the land is going back to wild, the beavers are coming back. Like a, a sticks of pencil? Yes, like a pencil. Upstream from Yolanda's house is a rather different piece of land, a wild garden and meadow belonging to our other neighbours. Macri and Bertrand have created a little Eden in our valley. A spring bubbles out of the rocks and creates pools and streams. Frogs jump as we pass. But even this paradise feels fragile. Back in May, this part of France was plummeted into sub-zero temperatures for several days. Extreme frost killed grapes and crops across a wide area. It was terrific this year because it began just after a, a big warm uh, period and it was late. Very late. Then uh, all was beginning. And, yes. uh, and then the big frost came back. Les bananiers, les figuiers, les, les rosiers, les rosiers, les rosiers tout, tout a été uh, pris par le froid. Like many smallholders near us, Bertrand is aware of the crucial role pollinators play in the life of the land. He's explaining how he didn't take the honey this winter, but left it for the hive to help the bees survive the extreme frost in the spring. Du basilic, un peu de persil. It's amazing to be able to gather your own fruit and vegetables. It gives such pleasure, this communion with the land. Everything is changing. The summers are hotter, the climate ever more unpredictable. The land is changing, and our relationship with it has to change too. Perhaps, as Bertrand said, that relationship now has to be one of communion. Perhaps we do need to rewild on a massive scale. Perhaps to save ourselves, we need to see nature as cohabitants rather than resources to take and landscapes to master. Perhaps we can change our deep-rooted ideas about land that emerged in the Neolithic. And so enter the Anthropocene with some sense of hope. We started the episode with the Neolithic stone circles. The cairns, the dray, the paths that opened up the landscape. And we end in a time of great upheaval with the great forest of the Cévennes creeping back. Listen to this. It's the sound of jays. As they squawk over the valley, these jays are giving us a helping hand, or rather beak, to this ongoing process of rewilding. The jays are collecting acorns and hoarding them for winter food. Often they forget where they left them, and the acorns sprout into saplings. Grazing flocks once ate those saplings and stripped the land. But as grazing declines, these jay-planted trees grow in greater numbers. That's why the process of forest clearance started thousands of years ago and accelerated by Neolithic farmers is now 
here at least, in reverse. So when you hear the Jays, what you're hearing is this, the present and the past, and perhaps the future of this land. <laughs> 